Welcome. Welcome, my friends, to the Beggars and Brawlers podcast. This is episode 65, recorded Friday the 30th of December 2022. This year is almost over. It's crazy. In keeping with that, I have a final preview for you of Rebel of Riddle and Woe, which may well be out now if I've gotten my things together. I'm recording this in the past. If not, it is the very soon forthcoming third book in the Tidecaller Chronicles. And at the end, I have a few thoughts about the, the, the challenge of doing voices when I'm recording. Okay. Alright, so before we get into it, I do want to give you a brief warning that there will be spoilers here. For anyone who hasn't read books 1 and 2, you might want to pause the recording, go back, read those, and then listen to it. Although, by this point, if you've already listened to the first four previews, you probably don't care. So, if that's the case, listen on. This is chapter 6, because we did a double feature last time of Rebel of Riddle and Woe, and some thoughts on these strange, strange voices that I do once we're done with the chapter. Six. Chengai is a second jungle of leaning houses pushing through the trees, shingle walls and thatch roofs blending into the green canopy, scarlet blossomed vines climbing everything. The city is built around a cluster of ruins, People seem to cling to signs of the past, as though by living near them we might gather some blessing from the ancients, some hint of how to survive the flood we all know is coming. Except they didn't survive, or these wouldn't be ruins. The city's streets are as tangled as the jungle it rises from, though they grow wider as we approach the center of town, where one of the massive relics rests, like a rust-eaten whale breaching for air. Short, olive-skinned people amble through the streets, balancing baskets on heads and shoulders, chatting in what sounds like a strange version of Daranese. The air is heavy with humidity and smells of the local coffee and cardamom crop drying on blankets in the sun. No one gives our wagon a second glance, which I'm grateful for. Going to the river post is already a risk. If we're not careful, the questions we need to ask run a high risk of revealing who we are, who I am. I have no doubt that Narimes will send a squad of overseers up the rails if he hears I was here. The irony is the Riverpost system is designed to do exactly that, transfer information up and downstream, and across drainages to create a network of communication. The temple needs it as eyes and ears in the wider world, but the monks who man each station double as a kind of local representative of our faith, supporting themselves through selling information and the ability to send messages long distance but also offering the counseling and arbitration services the temple does in Saray. I don't know whether it's spread our actual faith outside the Ujjain Peninsula, but the river posts are an integral part of life and trade out here. So while I need this river post for its news of the wider world, I also need it to not figure out that I'm news and broadcast Alethea Viola's location to anyone with a coin to listen. The whole reason we're out here is because Narimes would expect me to take a ship. He's no doubt heard, by river post, that I escaped Duran. The longer I go without appearing at the ports, the more he will start paying attention to news from inland. Unless he's stopped caring about me. That would be nice. But I doubt it. Even if he is preparing for a trip to the Dale, he will know I have dangerous information. That my father's papers were in Duran, that Gaxno likely came to me with news of Saray, and that Hiana will have revealed things to me in her attempts to recruit me. 
He will see me as a threat now more than ever, which is good. I am a threat. I just don't want to face him till I'm ready. The Iron Way cuts straight through the tangle of Chengai, rails built long before the city was here, leading to one of the Dale's daring, iron-girded bridges over the River Nye. The river post clings to a rocky island in the middle of the Nye, all austere lines and stonework like the home temple in Saray. A mix of fear and longing squeezes my heart at the sight, not so different from when I lived in Saray, though it feels like a lifetime ago. I miss it and hate it at the same time. We park the wagon on the far side of the river, at a proper exchange yard with stalls full of local goods and ox handlers and a hundred inviting scents from food peddlers. They would be inviting, anyway, if my stomach wasn't in knots over what's coming. I've been trying to untie those knots in basic tide all morning, but ever since Gaxna showed up, my concentration has felt like an ocean bottom I dive for and never reach. Which is a problem when we get to the river post. Poor concentration means a weak blind, and the monks stationed at these posts spend hours every day deep in water sight, listening for information in the water, then passing it along. Though they are often the students who couldn't pass the full training, coming up mediocre at physical forms or theocratic exams or political acumen, they are always skilled at water sight. I should know. I was almost one of them. I probably would have been if I hadn't stood up to Narimes and proved myself too dangerous to just exile. With my concentration scattered like this, all it will take is a brush of the wrist for the monk to see through my disguise. Anon and Gaxna work at it as soon as we're stopped, trading my worn thief's blacks for a local sarong and shawl, and carefully rubbing dirt into my skin, already tacky from the humidity and three days without a proper bath. They take my shoes, too, and I find some solace in the packed dirt of the streets as Anon and I walk toward the river post. I don't spend enough time in contact with the soil, and it strikes me now like a second kind of sea. Like, with different training, I might be able to spread my awareness through the ground as well. Anon's voice pulls me out of my head. You ready for this? We are on the riverbank, a series of mossy boulders forming a stepstone bridge out to the river post. The air is cooler here, and the rush of the current around the stones is comforting, like a mother's shush. I nod and take his hand, information flooding through the touch. Anon's thoughts are like a second, familiar stream alongside my own, a peculiar blend of humor and lechery and detailed observation. I am, I send through our bond. I am to play his local girlfriend, attending in silence as he, the Daranese trader, seeks information about the state of the world before deciding where to sell his load of textiles. I will guide his questions through our skin, and hopefully no one will be the wiser as to who we really are, so long as they don't touch my skin or question my off-colored eyes. Good, he grins. Let's go. We step onto the boulders, their tops worn with centuries of travelers come to seek information and guidance, the rush of the river nigh around them soothing to my ears. I keep breathing as we hop from one to the next, and my mind focuses. Gaxna and the rest of the crew wait back at the exchange, in clear sight if something goes wrong, but far enough that I can let go of them for now. We are here for a purpose. For clarity, oddly enough, though not the kind I usually seek from a new Jayan temple. Clarity of plans. A monk sits on the lowest step leading up to the temple, eyes closed and robes arranged, one foot in the water, an open ledger in his lap. This is where posters spend most of their days, alternating shifts with the other monk inside. 
They are like the hermits in the caves below the temple, only instead of listening for Uje's holy voice in the immersion, they're stuck listening for messages in the river current. The monk looks up as we approach, and my heart skips a beat. He's young, not so uncommon, as the younger monks are often sent to rural posts at first, but his gaze is penetrating, and a jolt of panic passes through me, that he has somehow read me through the air, that he already knows everything, and has sent a message in the waters to Saray. I ice it. The monk rises smoothly, closing the ledger and bowing as though we are in front of the home temple in Saray, not some backwater post. No sign he has realized I'm the heretic daughter who has split the temple and tried to kill the chosen of Ujjay. You are welcome in Ujjay's sight, he says, glancing at me briefly before looking to Anon. How may I be of service? News, Anon says, his voice shifted to sound like the merchants we meet on the rails, bored and impatient. Got a load of textiles bound for Saray, but I want clink of the city before the next intersection, case it's turned coffers while I was gone. The monk doesn't blink at his language. Dharani's merchants are not known for their social grace. And thankfully, his eyes stay on Anon, apparently dismissing me as unimportant. For once, I'm grateful for the misogyny of my brethren. Maybe it will keep me out of trouble for a change. By all means, he says, gesturing to stairs cut into the steep side of the rocky island. We follow, and Anon drops some coins in the green patinaed copper pot at the top, an expected offering, though the temple doesn't stipulate how much. Ujjay knows they should be able to support all this with what they take from the people of Saray. What are you seeking more specifically? the monk asks, once we are settled on cushions in the temple's Spartan altar room, rose incense burning and floor uneven underfoot, shaped to look like running water. Behind a curtain of hanging beads, the rear wall is open to the river, showing a view of it upstream. Taxes, Anon says. Your amaranth married one of the day-old, didn't he? Only a matter of time before they hike prices on us. Poffers know they're cutting into business everywhere else. The young monk adjusts his robes. The temple levied an extra 2% tariff on imported goods last month, but I assure you it is in keeping with their yearly adjustments, and not to do with Shejan Yeolat's rise in the temple. The way he says her name gives me pause. Yeolat, I push through a non-skin. Ask more about her. Sounds like he might not be a fan. Yeolat, huh? Yeol taken over the temple, too? The Theocrats have made certain allowances to the Salem Dale since her marriage to the Chosen, yes. He shifts as he says this, and I wish I could read him without giving myself away. If he's opposed to the Dale influence, or better yet, to Narimes, this will all be a lot easier. But no, this will have to be done the old-fashioned way. Allowances, Anon echoes. They're still buying goods off the Ironway, though? They are. The allowance is for a particular section of the city, which is now strictly for Dale use, along with their port privileges. I keep the shock from my face. That is an allowance indeed. Is the city to set up a craftwork temple? Is that how they're uniting the ways? But why would they need to if there's a monocle in the Dale? Or is that a secret Narimes is keeping from Yale at? I let go of all of that for now. It sounds like this monk doesn't approve, though he's trying to sound neutral about it. Not professional, but I'm grateful he's letting his trained exterior slip out here. I prompt Anon to ask more. The port and the city now, huh? You all gonna be craftologists pretty soon, then? The monk's back stiffens. The temple would never allow that. We are faithful to Ujjay. I see the opening and cue Anon. Are ya? I heard there's two temples now. 
but some of you couldn't stand the Dale woman and split off to form your own group. What does Ajay think about that? The proper temple will be restored, he says, and when I hear the fervor in his voice, my shoulders drop in relief. I don't need watersight to read that. May it be, brother, I say, raising my eyes from the floor. He starts, looking at me, then starts again, seeing my eyes, hearing my Saran accent. Aleph, I am a simple traveler, I say quickly, holding up a hand. I come in peace and in secrecy. Can I trust you to keep that? His thoughts could be read against his will or in a moment of weakness. Even if he's sympathetic to my cause, we have to be careful here. He takes a breath, and I can almost see him icing the emotions. My heart opens. This is no failed seer sent to the hinterlands to serve Ujay as best he can. This is a talented monk exiled for Narimes' ambition, as I would have been. You can, he says a beat later, but my superior will be back soon. He left for the market maybe an hour gone. He pauses, then says, I am Talimha. I return his seated bow as to an equal, though he bows much lower. Well met, Talimha. I will be swift. Do you remember trainer Yemla? Talimha smiles. How could I forget? He was the one who encouraged me to be a theocrat. Before... I nod, watching him again ice his emotions. I know that pain, aspiring to be something the theocracy doesn't allow. I long to take his hand, but I can't risk him reading my secrets through the bond. It would be too easy for his counterpart to find out and send word to Narimes. I grip his shoulder instead, cloth insulating our sight. You will be a theocrat, brother, if we can pull this all off. Is Yamla alive? Do you have any idea where he is? He's with the rebels, Talimha says, composed again, at least as far as I can tell. They are careful to hide their identities, but I haven't heard talk of him through the main channels. He's not in Saray, I'm almost sure of that. And the rebels? They have a temple somewhere? He grimaces. Yes, they never message from the same place, but... He opens his ledger, leafing through it to a normal-looking set of entries. I have been paying attention to the messages I think are from rebels, guessing at the originating post for each of them. Well, I and some of my cohort that ended up out here, too. I nod. They will be other students like him, exiled here against their will, burning to know more of the rebellion. To join it, maybe. How many more are like him? I shake my head. I don't have time for that. I'm not trying to lead a rebellion. The floods are more important. The monocle. Unless uniting the ways means taking back Saray. And? He swallows. As nearly as we can tell, they are somewhere in the upper peninsula. Maybe Kentau or the hills above it. Good. Thank you. He hesitates. They have been sending for you. I start. For me? But how could they? Not directly, not obviously. But there are messages that mention you, beyond the ones calling for your arrest and death. They're usually sent like merchant postings, seeking new laborers for hire, but, well, there are not too many people in the world who fit your description. Merchant postings, that is clever. Lots of jobs are offered through the river post so that locals with particular talents can find work outside their home cities. Too many for the temple to monitor. But a bored river poster? Still, affirming as it is, I don't need the rebels, just Yemla. But if he's with them... Could you send a message back? Respond to one of these posts, maybe? Would that be too obvious? I haven't actually used the river post system myself much. He chooses lip. Maybe, but what would you say? Floods. I think fast. 
that I'm interested maybe, but that I would need to work with Yemla directly, that I need to meet with him. Word it however makes the most sense. Maybe send the messages out separately? I don't know. He nods. I can do that. You should go now. Your eyes... I know. It was a risk coming here at all. Thank you, Jay. I found you and not your superior. I pause, halfway up. One more thing. Have you heard any talk of Narimes preparing for a trip to the Dale? Or a contingent of monks heading up there? It would likely be in secret. His eyes get distant, and he leafs through the last few pages in his ledger. No. Why? Call it a hunch, I say, wishing I could tell him more. There's too much risk someone will read what he knows later on, especially if they find out I was here. If you do hear something, is there a way to let me know? I'll post something for Chengai. A job, maybe. He grins. Temple restoration. North Coaster's preferred. I smile back. I'll look for that. Thank you. Of course. His grin fades. Now you should go. Better if my superior never sees you at all. I stand and fumble awkwardly for a moment, wanting to join hands in the Ujian way, before I pull him into a hug instead. Talimha is one of the good ones. Proof Narimes hasn't completely ruined our faith. I hate that I have to keep secrets from him. Ujay keep you, Talimha. Um, Thea? Anon says, as Talimha is answering, and Corinth guide you, Alethea of the House Viola, rightful chosen of Ujay. His words strike such a bolt through me, it takes Anon saying my name a second time before I hear him. What? But I follow his finger before he can even answer, through the curtain, up the river, to where a squad of men in dark blue robes stride toward us through the current. Overseers. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, as part of planning this last book that I'm working on, Queen of Blood and Blasphemy, I have gone back and read the previous books in the series. And as I always do, I've been jumping between the ebook and the audiobook because there are times when I just want to listen when I'm driving or whatever, and times when I want to read when I can use my eyes because they go faster. Um, and it's interesting to see because there are so many voices in this book that the first book, Daughter of Flood and Fury, didn't have that many voices. Most people there just kind of spoke like Americans. And I differentiated Gaxno with a breathy voice. But um, I, as a narrator, I didn't do many voices. And then in book two, Witch of Wealth and Ruin, I had her encountering people from more cultures like Isong and Anon and the other people who were there in the gladiator prison. And I just kind of got to the character and slapped a voice on them without thinking too deeply about what I was getting into. <laughs> and uh, I don't know that I would change it now, but it did kind of come back to haunt me in this book. But I thought before I get into that, I would just reveal to you what my internal key is for these people because in the recording of this book, I had to switch back and forth between so many accents so fast. <laughs> it was not easy to do. Uh, but my internal key for it is uh, Alethea. She's, she's an unmarked American accent. My accent, essentially, unmarked for me, just higher. So when she talks, she talks a little bit like this, but she's still just talking like an American. Um, Anon was more like a, like a surfer dude, like a drawly American. So he's still American. He's just kind of talking a little bit more, you know, like laid back and whatever. I guess he's got a little bit of a tight throat in there. 
And Gaxna, the only, really the only voice that it did differentiate in the first book, she's got vocal fry. So she's always talking like this. I guess she's like a non, except she's higher and she's kind of nasal and kind of fried. But I think that it, it, uh, it differentiates her voice pretty well. You can tell who's talking. And that's sort of my main goal with these. Yes, partially as a world builder, I want to show that they would not all be speaking the same sounding language, even if they're sharing a language because they have different mother tongues. And so they're going to have different accents. And it's just not realistic to have them all speaking the same. Whereas I guess you could argue that in book one, it was because almost all of the characters that we met there were characters who'd been born and raised in Saray. Um, that's not the case anymore. We've gotten much more international or multicultural or whatever the proper word is for a world that's at the level of technology that Alethea's is. Yeah. Then we get into the more complicated ones. Isong is uh, serious, but polite and kind of scaled back Ugandan. So I lived in Uganda for a year and a half and I got very good at their English accent because people understood me better when I spoke that way. I started off just speaking my American accent, like I'm not going to slow my voice down or do anything. And I found that if I just took on a bit of their accent, it is as though they could pick my words better. And it seems very strange and, it, and completely uh, made up from the perspective of someone who is speaking an American accent. But for them, if I talked like this, they could pick it much easier. So for Isong, what I tried to do was put just a touch of that in there because he's from like a very educated culture. And I think sort of like a German speaks pretty dang good English, even though they grew up speaking a very different sounding language. I figured that the Salem Dale would speak other languages pretty well, even if their mother tongue was something different. So for Isong, I had him have just a touch of that Ugandan accent, but not very strong. And then I let it all hang out with Akifte, who you probably heard, uh, he's like the full sing-song Ugandan, and he puts in the ha's, and ha, ah, for him I can love speaking like him because he has so much passion, and he is always saying these big dramatic things, and we need to fight for our lives, and that kind of thing, and for me it is, uh, it is very interesting to talk as though I have that strong Bamani accent, and uh, when I think about it, the name Bamani is actually uh, kind of... Lugandan derived. It sounds like it's a, it sounds like it's a Bantu language word. Ba is a, is a prefix that means people in Lugandan and Mani. Uh, I think I probably got that from Amani, which is a word for like power, like spiritual power in Luganda. So I don't remember exactly where I came up with the name for them, but when it came time to give a Kifte a voice, which I think I did in the previous, um, audiobook, it just automatically came out Ugandan. And then this is interesting. I found a connection between the two because he and Isong, despite being from the technological extremes of the peoples that exist in this world, people who are still in fiefdoms and battling in the jungle and people who live on mountaintops and who have all this technology no one else has accent to, they have a similar accent. And so that's led to some behind the scenes world building for me to explain why my audiobook narration is that way. It's become canon in the book in the, in the series itself. So that, will probably come out at some point, but I think it's funny how uh, that that influenced um, some of the history that I'm still writing for this world. Um, going back to what we talked about before, I think in the last um, post-babble about, uh, about how the details that we don't plan for sometimes end up being the most interesting. Um, so anyway, those are the voices that the main voices that I use. And there is a quite British one that comes in after a while. And there's a scaled back British one, um, that we'll meet down the road in this audiobook. But, uh, 
it's a big cast. Uh, and, you know, I'm writing an ensemble cast in here. And it was only when I started recording it that I realized what I had done. Because I do like doing voices. Um, I've lived in other places and, uh, and I always kind of sponge up their accents. But um, switching between them quickly, it's really hard to do because my narrator has a serious American accent. And then I'm going to jump to a Keith It's very uh, enthusiastic and vibrant Uganda. And then I have to go into Gaxna's like kind of mad and nasally American. It's, it's hard to do. Um, and I found myself having more pauses than I needed, awkward pauses in the recording of it because I couldn't jump from one voice to another as fast as I needed to. And Ironically, Tewos was the hardest. He doesn't have that many lines. I didn't mention him up above. But for me, the code that I think of when I have a line from Tewo is peaceful Japanese. And um, I lived in Japan for four years. I speak the language decently and I, I can do a raging Japanese English accent all day because I had so many students. I was teaching, teaching English when I was there who were somewhere in the process of learning English and had all kinds of accents. Well, all the same, just like varying degrees of accent. And so that should be really easy for me to do. But even now, as I think about jumping into it while I'm talking to you, it's hard to switch gears into that accent. Once I'm in, just like when I start speaking Japanese, it's very comfortable. I can do it a lot. But it is not so easy to switch into. And for that reason, and of course, for Tsewo, I did not want to have such a strong accent. So I just kept him to be a little bit light Japanese, like he can speak and you can understand, but he has a few pauses and a few strange consonants that he says. Um, it was really hard to switch into that one. So every time that Tewo had a line, it was like, full stop, stop the recording, go back, do it again, because I couldn't just jump into it. So that's really interesting. I know that there's a, there's, um, a concept called code switching in translation, and it's not your ability to uh, how well you can speak the language, but how well you can switch between languages. And I guess for whatever reason, maybe because while I was in Uganda, I was speaking English and sometimes speaking Luganda because people there just blend it all the time. And they were very pleased if I could mix some Luganda in. So I was switching back and forth a lot. And I've had the same experience with Spanish, even though I don't have anyone with a, like a Spanish accent here. But anyway, I find it easier to code switch into some of those other languages, I think, because when I've been using them, like when I've been traveling in Central America, I've been with English speaking people. So we're always hopping back and forth. And I learned it in classrooms and in kitchens where people were speaking both. But Japanese was like full stop. We are in Japan mode, Japanese mode or English mode. So I don't know if I'm going to use that accent again if I have another series and I need to come up with accents familiar as it is. So anyways, I am always curious and a little bit hesitant to hear what people think of the accents that I do in these books because I know that they can be intense. And sometimes I wonder whether I shouldn't just be reading everything flat, even though it's harder to tell who's saying what when we don't have a vocal cue for every line of dialogue in a scene with a group of people. But that's some of the experience of recording this one. It was not easy to do. So with that, I think we're going to wrap up the previews. Hopefully the book is out now or will be in just a second. And you can listen to what I mean about all of this and see more of the implications that I've been talking about. Um, I am really proud of the book. I think it's great. And I'm having a lot of fun writing the next one. So hopefully we don't take as long to get that one out to you. But uh, as always, my main hope is that this podcast finds you well and in the company of good books. I hope that you've enjoyed these previews even more that you enjoy my books um, and that you read on. For more information on Levi Jacobs and his books, including the award-winning Tide Collar Chronicles, 
visit www.levijacobs.com. Or for a free audiobook, only available to podcast listeners, go to www.levijacobs.com slash free. Thanks for listening and read on.